You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our scripture for day today comes from John 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm excited to keep studying the, the Gospel of John together here in John chapter 3, so you can go ahead and turn there with me if you haven't yet. Um, I'm Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. I see some new faces, so let me go ahead and welcome you, and thank you for coming and spending time with us on this Sunday morning. So Taylor preached last week that classic passage, that classic interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, and, and that conversation ends in verse 15, and here's what it says. It says that whoever believes in Jesus, uh, who believes in him, may have eternal life. And so what we, he- we see here in verses 16 through 21, this next passage, I think, is John's meditation on, on everything we saw in that previous conversation, specifically on, on eternal life in Jesus. So he's, he's answering questions like, how is this possible to have eternal life in Jesus? What does it take to have eternal life in Jesus? What happens if you take him up on his offer for eternal life? What happens if you don't take him up on his offer for eternal life? So he's really meditating, exploring all these questions that we'd have based upon this previous conversation and I think the way, and commentators, I think, uh, show us this, as I studied this week, I saw that, that the way that John seems to gather up all of these uh, questions in this exploration is by emphasizing the mission of Jesus, that Jesus is on a mission. That's what we see in this chapter, or in this passage. So verse 16 says that God gave his only son. Verse 17 says that God sent his son. Verse 19 said that light has come into the world, that light being Jesus. So the prominent theme throughout this passage is that Jesus is given. Jesus is sent. Jesus has come, and this is why commentators say this is the passage that's talking about Jesus' mission. So that's our focus today. And so if you're here and you are uh, curious about Christianity, if you're seeking but you're not quite convinced yet, you're on the, on the right in the fence maybe, this is a great Sunday for you to be here because this passage is, is just going to answer your questions. It's a, it's a real in-your-face, here's what you get, here's what you don't get when it comes to Jesus. If you're here and you're a Christian, which I'm sure is most of you, today is going to be a greater call to urgency, a greater call to deeper faith, a greater response to the life and the truth that we have in the gospel. This is what we find out as we look at Jesus' mission. There's three things we're going to see today, okay? The heart of Jesus' mission. What is the heart behind his mission? Secondly, a clarification on Jesus' mission. And then thirdly, our response, the response to Jesus' mission. Before we dig in together, let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, we come to you and we are thankful, God, that you love the world, that you've sent your Son to the world, 
so that we might be saved, forgiven, made clean, made right and reconciled, so that we can have loving, abundant, life-giving relationship with you, our Father and Creator. God, I pray that today you'd instruct our hearts, that you would woo us and draw us into a deeper relationship with you because of the beauty of the good news of Jesus' arrival and his mission. So God, I pray that you would minister to us where we're at. There's some people in here who I'm sure are hurting and discouraged uh, and seeking. God, I pray that you would meet them where they are at. God, I pray for those of us who are curious and desirous and walking with you, that you would call us into a greater relationship with you, God. Just meet us where we are at. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. The heart of Jesus's mission. So what I want to do here is look at verse 16, and I want to pay close attention to the grammar, close attention to some of the details here in verse 16, because it's going to reveal the motivation, the heart behind Jesus's mission. So it says in verse 16, this classic verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved the world. This means that Jesus is sent from heaven, departs from heaven to earth. Why? Because of God's great love for the world. God's loving heart behind this mission is more radical. It's more different than anything that you can imagine. It's a holy love. God's love is unlike anything that you've ever encountered before because this this detail right here. Remember, the word world, especially in the Gospel of John, has negative connotations. It's a it refers to darkness, unbelief, resistance. Even John chapter 1 verse 10 says this, he was in the world, Jesus was in the world, the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. So world, as we read that in the gospel of John, is meant to, to convey to us a negative idea, that we resist God, we don't welcome God. So when you read this, that God loves the world, you need to think that God sends Jesus to his enemies. God sends Jesus to the darkness. God sends Jesus to the place where he will meet resistance. The common mistake in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, is to think that this, is, this verse is about us. And certainly God loves us so much, but that's not actually the, the, the point of emphasis in this verse. It's not about us being so lovable and lovely. When it says that God so loved the world, the better way to translate that is God in this way has demonstrated his love for the world. It's, it's not about us being the object of God's love. It's about the intensity of God's love, the kind of quality of God's love. And God's love reaches out to those who are difficult, to those who are hostile, to those who won't return it and who will never be able to match it. Think about that. That is God's heart behind Jesus' mission, to send his very own son to enemy territory where it won't be reciprocated. Now, that's pretty awesome. That is an amazing form of love, but gets even better. It escalates. Look at verse 16. It says that he gave his only son. Now, some of your Bibles say begotten, maybe. That word only or begotten it has firstborn connotations. And in this, in this uh, ancient culture, 
If you're the firstborn son, that means that you get half the inheritance. It means you're prized. It means all the family's hopes and dreams are invested in you. To be the firstborn son, it's this privileged status. You're delighted and you're cherished. You're important. You're substantial. And that is who God gave to save the world, his enemies. God did not just give half-hearted love. God did not just give token love, superficial love. God gave his best, his very own delighted and cherished firstborn son. That's who he, it says, gave up. He gave up his only son so that we could have the chance to be saved. So God's love It's not only for people who are difficult and resist him, but it's also deeply sacrificial. It's action, not just words. It's the best, not half-hearted. But now look, it gets even better. Look at the aim. The aim of God's love, as we continue in verse 16, it says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what does this show us about God's heart? What's he aiming at? What's he desiring in this mission of Jesus? That whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have life forever. Whoever, which means that God's heart, it's a a willing heart. It's a pleading heart. It's a heart that desires that all his enemies would be saved. This gift of the Son, it's made available to all. That means God's love. It's not discouraged by darkness. It's not discouraged by resistance. It's willing. It's pleading. And this gets even more crystal clear in verse 17. Look what it says. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, which means this. Between condemning and saving, okay, which are two acts of God, God prefers saving. His favorite thing to do is saving. His heart behind this mission of Jesus is to save. This is God's pleading, willing, desiring heart to save his enemies. Ezekiel 33, we read this this morning. God says, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear the pleading, the availability of his heart, even to those who don't love him in return? Exodus 34, it's one of the most uh, quoted verses in all of the Bible, by the Bible itself. It says that God is slow to anger but abounding, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness means that God is on the edge of his seat to grant forgiveness. God is on the edge of his seat to show kindness. He's slow to anger. His preference is love. 1 Timothy 2 says, after Paul tells us to pray, he says, this is good and is pleasing the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. A pleading, willing heart is the heart behind Jesus' mission, and this heart is incredible. It's for the enemy. It's for the difficult. It's action, not just words. It's the best, not what's left over. It's pleading. It's willing. So look, if you're here and you're seeking and curious, if if you're curious about the claims of Christianity, just know this. 
that this is God's heart for you. This is his affection, how he feels towards you. He desires that you come into reconciled relationship with him and have life abundantly in him. He doesn't, his preference is to save, not condemn. His preference is to grant forgiveness, not remain alienated from you. This love is for you. And friend, seeker, person who's curious, you will not find a better form of love, a better, a better person to love than this. A person who loves his enemies with the best kind of love. This is for you. Really, it's for you. The darkness has not overcome it. Your sin is not too great for it. His mercy is always more. Your sin does not define you. God's love, if you respond, that's what defines you. So his heart for you is that you would come to know him. And if this is God's heart for the world, believer, brother, and sister, how much more is this a sure thing for you who are his, that this is God's heart for you? All you need to do believer, to know that, that God has this affection, this passionate affection for you, a heart that is always available to you, never shut out from you. All you have to do is look to the cross. Jesus was sent to give you that assurance that God is always for you and loves you and will never abandon you. And your sin, no matter how frequent, no matter how pervasive, no matter what it is, He's not withholding his love from you. And that's not on the basis of your performance. It's on the basis of his heart that he has for you that catapulted Jesus from heaven to earth. And if this is God's heart, a willing, pleading, giving the best for his enemies, if this is God's heart, it should be our heart. Right? This challenges our love, I think. We don't love difficult people, but God does. We don't love with our best, but God does. And we don't love with patience and willingness, but God does over and over again. We're selfish and selective and measured with our love. But God's love, it's generous. It's abounding. It's scandalous. So if you're struggling to love people like this, if you don't love people like this, which I think it's fair to say all of us struggle to love people like this, what's the reason? Why is it that we don't love people with the heart of God? And here's why. Romans 5 says that when you're united to Jesus, God pours his, pours his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit who's indwelling you. The reason we don't love people the way God loves people is because we have not communed with God so deeply and profoundly that his love has filled us abundantly. Because when you have that love residing in you at all times, that abundant, rich, profound love of God for you, when, you're, when you have knowledge of that, soul, heart level knowledge of that, that God loves you no matter what, you can give, that, you can give love all the time without feeling burned, without making excuses, with no limitations. Because you can give and give and give and give and never receive anything in return and feel like you've lost nothing because you have it all already in the love of God for you. And so if there's a love deficiency in our lives, <laughs> it's not because we don't know enough in our heads. It's because we don't know enough in our hearts. We have not communed with God to the point where we are so assured of his love for us. And when we, when we get that, when that really takes root 
oh man, we just were abundantly overflowing with love at all times, surging out of us, and we're not making limitations or excuses. We're not withholding anything from us. It's just a natural overflow from this profound walk we have with our Father. So God's heart in the mission of Jesus, in the gospel, the good news, the kingdom of heaven, God's heart is pulsating with a love that loves his enemies, that is always willing, and that is the best. But it's important that we make a clarification because I don't want to, make, I don't want to confuse anybody here, neither does John. So he writes verse 18. Look at verse 18. Let's make a clarification here. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So why would John write this verse? Why would he do this? John doesn't want us to make the mistake of thinking that God's heart eliminates accountability, or that God's heart eliminates justice, or that God's heart eliminates severity or wrath. Just because God is love does not mean there isn't judgment. Just because God is love does not mean there's no severity or accountability. And if you think that, that's a totally warped view of God's love. It is because, it is precisely because God is love that he has wrath and that he has fury and that he has anger. Now we, in our Western culture, are pretty sheltered. And so we don't really understand this point. We think that love is someone who agrees with me and someone who's going to get behind everything I do and someone who's just going to be my biggest fan and, and uh, uh, applaud everything I do. That's a very sheltered Western form of love. Globally, historically, uh, people who suffer, people who are in, in uh, settings and territories where there's war-torn families, war-torn villages, poverty, tyrants, uh, People there who believe in the gospel and who follow Jesus know that it is precisely because God is love that he must take issue with injustice, that he must take issue with what we call sin, that a God who lets people off the hook, who doesn't have accountability, is not a God of love at all. And so we are so sheltered. We think that God's love must mean that he agrees with me when that's a very, very, (laughs) C.S. Lewis would call it a chronologically snobbish perspective of God's love. Globally, historically, all around the world, people understand love has to have anger. In fact, you know what somebody loves based on what makes them angry. And so God, who is love, must oppose what is evil and wrong and wicked and destructive and unjust. And you might say, you're giving, you know, these extreme things like war-torn places, you know, poverty, But listen, God is not going to, because he is loving, God is not going to get behind our agendas and our desires that are self-destructive, right? Think of an unhealthy, toxic relationship where each person in that relationship just agrees with the other person. What is that called? Enablement. And it's not a healthy relationship. It produces unhealthy people. Because God is love, there's accountability, There's opposition and contradiction. And in this relationship with God, he's always right. And we're always wrong. And so God, when we feel like there's a difference of opinion, he wins out. And that's because he's loving. So 
see, I hope you see that God's love, what John wants us to see is that God's love, it's not incompatible with judgment. His judgment, it's an impulse of his love. Now, I want you to notice two details here in this verse, in verse 18. First, John writes that those who do not believe are condemned because they do not believe in the name of the only Son of God, in the name of the only Son of God. Now, you might hear that and think, that's a really scarce criteria, a really bare criteria. Wouldn't that be easy to overlook? Wouldn't that be easy to miss that this is the one thing that God gives for us to believe in, to be saved? And that's the wrong way to look at it. If you think that's scarce or, or not enough evidence, that's not the right way to look at it. Actually, we should see that God has made it so abundantly clear and simple and easy all at the same time as to know where salvation is to be found. To reject Jesus is rejecting the most clear and simple evidence that God, who is unseeable, untouchable, transcendent, and far beyond us, he has given. He has given us simple and clear evidence in the name of Jesus, and that's all we're given, and that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. It's so clear. It's so basic. Even a child can recognize who Jesus is and respond. Now, Romans 1, I'm not going to talk about this a lot. Romans 1 teaches that all are accountable. All are accountable based on God's revelation in all the earth. But the emphasis here is that anyone who has heard the name of Jesus and his story and his claims are accountable because that presentation and revelation, it's so clear, it's so simple, it's so vivid that it's enough. So if you're here and you're seeking, the evidence that Jesus was a real historical person, that the resurrection is true, that the Bible's accounts are all reliable and true, you'll find, if you're, if you're seeking in order to find truth, if that's your pursuit, you will find very quickly, very soon, that Christianity is the most attested and proven and comes through, uh, sought-after position that there is. So God has made it so simple. Just believe in the name of Jesus. And this is a grace, and this is amazing, because all of the other perspectives, worldviews, religions of the world, it's messy, it's uncertain, it's complicated. It's like rocket science trying to figure out how do we get saved. (laughs) Not so with God, the one true God. He has made it so clear and basic is just believe in the name of Jesus. Second, though, John writes that those who do not believe are condemned already. Not one day, in the future, but, but presently, already. If you do not believe in the name of Jesus, you're underneath this judgment right here, right now. So here's what you need to think. Don't think this. Don't think I can make a decision later. After I figure some things out, after I get my ducks in a row, after I make enough money or get the fun out of my system, out of my, out of my body, you know, one day I'll settle down and figure it all out. Don't make that mistake. Because condemnation and accountability, it's not a future reality, it's a present reality. Guilt is not determined later, it's determined now. And if you don't like that, or if that's just not, doesn't sit with you, I want you to hear me as I say this. Apart from the forgiveness offered in the name of Jesus, here's what happens. People seek to establish their own righteousness by what they do. And so, When we do that, we put all of our chips into that basket, we end up crushing others, we end up taking shortcuts, we end up stepping on people, we become cruel, desensitized people because we try to establish ourselves by what we do. Or we try to establish our righteousness by by 
who loves us and who we love. And so we end up smothering people and becoming consumed by people and taking advantage and manipulating people. So what we have now is a whole society of people crushing each other and taking advantage of each other, destroying one another and destroying God's good world. And to top it all off, I just want to to persuade you that guilt is real. To top it all off, we worship people and we worship things. We don't worship the God alone who is worthy. And so we are guilty now, not later. So I appeal to you, okay, if you're here and you're curious and you're seeking and you're, you're, you're trying to figure out this whole thing, don't put off making a decision for Jesus until later when things make more sense. There is never a convenient time to receive Jesus. It's not going to happen. Those stars don't just align and all of a sudden, oh yeah, this is the perfect timing. Don't make a decision later. Make a decision now because condemnation is not later. Condemnation's already happening. And everyone else, citizen church, if we believe this, if this is true, that condemnation's not for then, but for now, it's accountability now already, this should, this should light a fire in us, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? Like our people we love and people God loves are, are perishing. <laughs> are on the road to self-destruction, are in this present reality right here, right now. And the most loving thing to do, if God's heart for the world has moved you at all, the most loving thing we should do is position ourselves strategically in other people's lives so that we can have that opportunity to tell them God's heart for them, that there's hope for them. It's okay if it's weird. It's okay if it's awkward. That's a small price to pay given this great reality that guilt isn't later, it's already. And so this should move our hearts, move us to be more bold, to be more audacious, to have conversations about Jesus with people that we love and that God loves. So John makes a clarification here. Yes, God's love for his enemies, and it pleads, and it's the best love. He sent his only son into the world because he loves the world. But clarification, that doesn't mean that accountability isn't real. It is real. Now, St. Augustine, he says, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Meaning, if we don't have proper self-understanding, we'll never come to Jesus. We'll never come to God. And so John now wants to give us an understanding of why, that, why do we reject Jesus? Why do we push off this offer and this great love that God has for us? So John wants to explain this to us. He wants to give us some self-understanding. Look at verse 19. Let's see the response to Jesus' mission. Verse 19 says this, and this is the judgment or the verdict. Here's the verdict. The light, Jesus, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the judgment. So what's the observation? We reject Jesus, who has come into the world to save, to ransom, because why? We love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We reject Jesus because we love darkness, because we prefer evil. Now again, you might think that sounds harsh or judgy or archaic or something. Let me explain this to you again. 
all of us in here, every single one of us, okay, we have desires that are natural to the body. Of course, we think of sexuality when I say that, but our natural desires would also include hunger. It includes survival, uh, control, and our longing to be happy. The Bible calls this the flesh, okay? We have desires that are natural to the body. All of these things are natural, but when they are not curbed, when they are not restrained, when they are given permission to be in the driver's seat, then we become pleasure seekers and addicted to instant gratification. So here's what happens. Our sexuality becomes lust. Our hunger becomes gluttony. Our need to survive becomes selfishness. Our need to control becomes manipulation. Our need to be happy becomes materialism. Okay? That's the evil. That's the darkness that John's talking about. That's what we prefer, and that's why we don't choose Jesus. It's easy to admit that we love these things, that we live for these things. We love pleasure. We love instant gratification. We live our lives for it. So is this really darkness? Is this really evil? Is it really so bad to live for yourself? Well, our, our love for pleasure, our flesh, like I've said time and time again, it's destroying us and it causes us to destroy others and it causes us to destroy our world and our societies around us. So yes, it is morally wrong. It is evil. And our love for darkness, look what it does. It forces us to do verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. What this means is we want to be left alone. We don't want accountability. We don't want to feel bad about the things that make us happy. We don't want to feel bad about the things that bring us pleasure. We want to live in this fantasy that it's okay to live for ourselves to live for pleasure, to self-realize with no consequence. We want to live in that illusion and protect that illusion at all costs. And guess who is the greatest threat to that illusion? It's Jesus who was sent into the world. He disrupts all of that. He calls us to die to ourselves. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him, to not live for ourselves any longer. And so we prefer to remain in the darkness where there's no accountability, where there's no check where we can just live in the fantasy that it's okay to live for ourselves and there is no consequence. So we do what? We throw off authority structures. We change morality. So we have permission to realize these desires of our body. And not just without consequence, though, but as this new moral vision for life. So we don't just not feel bad about self-realizing, but good about it, as, as if it's this uh, virtue thing that we must pursue. But again, this, friends, is self-destruction and society corroding. To seek pleasure, it might sound like no big deal, but in the long run, it destroys you and destroys others around you. So let me ask you, seeker, a friend here who's curious about these things, this way of life, this fantasy, this illusion to live for myself at all costs, to realize these desires within me at all costs, without accountability, how is this going for you? Does this way of life go well? How is this vision for life playing out? You know, it's interesting. Uh, psychology is catching up with the Bible, finally. And social science only affirms that for all the self-realization and self-permission and denial of limitations and change of morality that's going on, 
we're not just no happier. We are far less happy now. We're more miserable, more addicted, more anxious, more medicated than ever before. The problem is not accountability. The problem is not authority. The problem is not having a Lord of our life. The problem is that we have preferred to self-realize over die to self. It's a friend here who's curious and seeking. It's time, I think, to consider a change. There has to be a better way forward. It has to be better than this, right? It's got to be better than this, right? Self-destruction. Look at verse 21. Friends, it does get better. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. What does it mean to do what is true? What does John mean by that? What he means is this. Bring Jesus' claims. Bring Jesus' vision for life. Bring Jesus' truth into the center of your life and let him have final terms. Let him have final say on everything and watch your life be built out from there. And what's going to happen is this. You're going to come to the truth, to the light. You're going to begin walking in the light, which means fullness of life. Your way of life in Jesus is going to correspond to reality in a way that allows you to tap into a fullness of life that you never knew was possible apart from Jesus. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. What that means is when we, when we take this courageous step of faith to bring Jesus into the center of our lives and let him be Lord and have final say, the change, the transformation he brings, the joy that he brings, the satisfaction he brings into our lives it is going to persuade your heart. It is going to be validated, validated to you at the deepest levels that, that this is all real, that this is all worth it, that true life is actually found in Jesus. You're going to find out that God is real, that these works, this change that he's bringing, out, bringing about is carried out by God himself, that he's with you, that he, he loves you that he's not done with you. That although, yes, you're a work in progress, you're his work in progress. So friends, if you're here and you're seeking, don't put off the best thing that you're ever going to decide to do, which is to bring Jesus into the center of your life and enter into the truth and be persuaded in your hearts that he's real and he loves you. And everybody else here, this isn't a call just for people who are interested in Christianity. This is a call for you to take a step deeper into your faith. There is more of Jesus for you to have. There are 10,000 glories for you yet to experience in God. And so will you, will you also take that audacious step of faith and say yes to Jesus somewhere in your life where you're withholding from him? Because he wants to validate for you that he is better. But what you have to do is you have to do what is true so that you can walk in the light, so that you can clearly see that these works have been carried out by God. This is the mission of Jesus, to not leave us to ourselves, but to save us from our self-destruction. And what he offers is better. Let's pray. Father,
Your mercy is more. It's more than our regrets and mistakes and our sins and our baggage. And God, we are grateful that you have not left us to our own devices. You could have. You totally could have turned your back on us after the rejection and the distasteful ways we treat you, how we're not faithful to you, how we prefer other things before you. God, your heart is so rich for us. You've given us the best, your, your only son, so that we can have the chance to be saved. God, I pray for anyone here who's considering you, that today would be the day that they start over and have a brand new life. I pray for everyone else here who's a confessor, who's a follower of your son, Jesus, that we would cling to you, trust you, say yes to you, no longer withhold from you, and experience fullness of life in you. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.